Hello and welcome. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the 2021 podcast series. Each month, we will be discussing a current events topic of interest to our listeners. This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Jessica DeLong, Associate Professor of Urology and the Medical Director at Chesapeake Regional Surgery Center at Virginia Beach and the Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia. Today, we'll be discussing robotics in the lower urinary tract uh, reconstruction with a focus on female disorders. Uh, Jessica, welcome, and we truly thank you very much for your time and expertise, and we welcome you to the program. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here speaking with you. So I guess the first thing I think for our listeners, uh, uh, for our listeners' interest, um, what is the current role for robotics in female reconstruction? And other than the sacral copalpexy, which I think most people are uh, at least somewhat familiar with, what other types of things are you employing for uh, female reconstruction uh, with the robotic platform or any minimally invasive surgery? Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, I think kind of the, the mainstay started out with robotic sacrocopalpexy. It's really decreased the morbidity of that procedure. And the vast majority of these are being done with the minimally invasive platform. And from there, it's really expanded. I mean, I think the integration of robotics into urology has been interesting and uh, super progressive. So, I use it uh, most regularly for the sacrocopalpexy, but also for uh, fistula repair, uh, pretty commonly, you know, fistula that uh, might be super trigonal, uh, involving the ureters, uh, maybe a redo case. I think that's a really nice time to use the robot, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Um, for some of these mesh complications, I found it's a really nice approach. So if it's not approachable vaginally, again, uh, using the robotic platform is uh, super helpful, makes it a much more straightforward procedure. Um, there are some uh, of my colleagues who are using it for some of the transgender uh, surgeries. We are uh, not part of a robust transgender program, but I know uh, my colleagues have used it uh, for robotic-assisted vaginectomy. Uh, and then, of course, any of the other lower urinary tract uh, reconstructive procedures, such as um, augmentation cystoplasty, even continent catheterizable stomas, iliovesicostomy, uh, cystectomy for benign or malignant causes. So I think there's uh, a wide variety of things it's used for currently and hopefully, you know, really bright future for it as well. For those who do sacred copalpexy or those who want to start doing it, has there um, been any change or, or any reluctance uh, because of all the hysteria of the mesh uh, litigation going on? Uh, has that changed what you do or, or how do we go about uh, navigating those waters? You know, it has. And I think we've all as urologists paid close attention to that controversy. And I think we've all changed how we cancel, counsel our patients and the sorts of procedures we're offering. There is a big um, uh, or a wide variety, I should say, of practice patterns when you look across the country. So there are some institutions that have really cut back on any mesh they're using. And that's not just vaginal uh, mesh, which none of us are doing now, but also including uh, mid-urethral sling. And some institutions who wouldn't want to do a sacred copalpexy with, with mesh. You know, I think we're somewhere in between uh, and it'll be uh, really, really interesting to see what happens in the future if that... Um, 
controversy will extend further and really eliminate our usage of, of mesh slings and eliminate our usage of the Y mesh for sacral copulpexy. Um, I have offered native tissue repair via a robotic sacral copulpexy approach that has been done. The results that we have uh, that I, not personally, but that are available just really aren't that long-term. And I think we shouldn't expect them to last as well, have that super low recurrence rate that you have when you use mesh. Um, but I think there's been kind of a, the pendulum has swung back to a lot of native tissue repairs and that's pulled it away from some of the minimal invasive approaches because we're doing that vaginally again. Um, so, you know, time will tell. I think I have not had any trouble with um, using the Y-mesh from the abdominal or minimally invasive approach. I think it's in a different plane. It's much less likely to have any exposures. Um, we always, uh, you know, peritone retroperitonealize it again uh, with the, uh, our closure. So I think that that procedure is probably here to, to last, but it, it makes what was a very brief conversation into a much longer one in clinic for sure. Sure. Did, um we used to do a lot of these um, uh, at our institution, and the numbers have have tapered off a little bit. But we we got involved in a lot of um, supra um, cervical, or, or when they when they would preserve the cervix, and so you'd mm -hmm. get kind of this supra cervical sacral copulpexy. Is that still a fairly sought after? What are the gynecologists' view of leaving that extra tissue during their hysterectomy and such? Yeah, it is. Again, I think that's probably regional practice patterns and there, there's not maybe enough data to rely on to say, hey, you really need to consider, um, you know, uh, a cervical sparing hysterectomy. Um, what I have done, uh, I don't do hysterectomy. That's not part of my training. There are obviously some urologists who trained in that and that, that's great. You can do it all in one. In my case, I would do that case jointly with a gynecologist ecologist, you know, that's where we would overlap in this field and, and they would do a super cervical hysterectomy and then I would do the sacral copulpexy. Uh, I know there are people who are uh, taking the cervix and still having good success. You know, I think it depends on the tissue quality in the patient, but in my mind, I would, I would leave the cervix for that. And you mentioned the gynecologist, um, is, uh, your relationship. And, and again, it's probably institution dependent and everybody has a different type of, um, relationship. Uh, is there any uh, truth to kind of this concept of um, if the if they have a uterus, they get sent to gynecology. If they don't have a uterus, they get sent to urology. Or how do you do a lot of combined procedures with the gynecology group, and are they kind of your friends? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know how to play nice in the sandbox. They're they're my friends. Uh, we have a nice cordial relationship. <laughs> Uh, in in my area of of the world, there's uh, a lot of a lot of gray zones and a lot of overlap. So there are some gynecologists that only treat uterine problems. There are some that have some urogynecology training and will do an anterior repair or posterior repair. There's none in my area that are doing incontinence procedures. So it really depends upon uh, you know where that patient is being sent from. So if it's from a practice that doesn't do any of that, then it just gets sent to me. And if it's one that likes to overlap, then I'll do a combined procedure. And the more common one in that case would be not a minimally invasive procedure. That would be, uh, you know, gynecologist wants to do a vaginal hysterectomy and I'll come behind there, do an apical suspension and a sling or whatever else it might be that's needed. Um, but I think we, I'm lucky we have a nice relationship. The medical school that I'm, I'm faculty in has a good program. So 
um, you know, we're able to kind of work together and, and help patients and help each other when, when either one might get into trouble. Sure. And you also mentioned in that last um, uh, snippet, the uh, incontinence. Have, have we, there was a time we did some laparoscopic suspensions and such, and mm-hmm. a couple of urologic articles, articles basically uh, almost essentially put an end to those uh, probably 20 years ago. Uh, have we ventured into minimally invasive um, abdominal uh, incontinence procedures, or are they still all fairly minimally invasive pelvic, transvaginal, trans uh, pelvic procedures? Yeah, so I think I think the royal we has ventured. Um, you know, I read a couple articles uh, recently that were really interesting to me about a, a resurgence of the birch uh, copal suspension. For that reason, again, with the mesh uh, controversy, it's not something that I've I have any experience uh, with. Full disclosure, I have never gotten within ten feet of a birch uh, procedure. I didn't learn how to do that as a resident. It's not something I'm familiar with, but. Um, uh, you know, that has some disadvantages that we all all know about, but there are some folks who are trying to do a minimally invasive approach to that. And um, I, I think the majority of those incontinence procedures are still going to be done uh, with a vaginal approach. And, and it really is such a straightforward, low morbidity procedure. It's hard to beat that, you know. Um, there's uh, some uh, interest also in artificial urinary sphincter for women. You know, we've been limited in how we can um, implant those. It's a very morbid procedure that bladder neck dissection can be really challenging and trying to do that minimally invasively, I think is a really neat option. And there are some people doing that where it's indicated the AUS would be a good idea. And Hey, look, we were able to do that now uh, minimally invasively with that kind of visualization. So I think that's a really interesting uh, future point. Great. Um, what, Maybe you can touch on the fistula repairs. I know your group really does a lot of uh, international outreach and you have a lot of experience with fistula and, and, and certainly a lot of people seek your institution for care there. Um, how, how do you go about um, selecting minimally invasive uh, fistula repair versus you know, major open or even transvaginal repairs for a fistula? So the approach, I, I guess my, you know, my flow chart in my mind would begin with uh, fistula location. So if it's a fairly low fistula, reachable vaginally, and the introitus is, you know, usable, basically, there's not, a, it's not a hugely radiated field, I can get to that area, then I would probably uh, prefer a, a vaginal approach. Now, if it's a higher fistula, uh, if there's a lot of damage to the introitus, if that area is really not a place you want to be in surgically, Certainly, if it involves uh, ureters or if it's near the ureters, then I would choose to approach that abdominally. So I'd first make that distinction, okay, is this a vaginal or abdominal approach or very rarely a combined approach? And then if I've decided it's abdominal, uh, then you say, okay, is this something that's approachable uh, robotically or does this need to be open? And I think uh, the vast majority, it's really a, a very nice case robotically. I think it simplifies the approach, the visualizations unparalleled. You know, that's a tough space to get into uh, and be able to see nicely open. So unless the abdomen is very hostile, I think it's worth a, a robotic approach. And um, from there, then you're deciding, okay, is this a transvesical or an extravesical approach? Uh, I've tended to do more transvesical, and that's the same way I approach uh 
uh, mesh that's in that area that's eroded from a vaginal repair. And I've, it's just, I think it's been a, a very uh, straightforward way to approach those problems. And patients have done quite well. Um, you know, particularly recurrent uh, fistula, I've, I've approached that way very, uh, very nicely. Okay, great. Uh, I, I think you know, I know the focus on this was female disorders, but I know you, you certainly do a lot of male uh, reconstruction. Is there anything that, that you want to touch on as far as uh, what might what you guys might be doing that's pretty cool for um, <laughs> male, you know, male robotic reconstruction uh, for a couple minutes? Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's some really uh, innovative things that are being done, uh, many of which are in men following uh, prostate treatment. So prostate cancer treatment, whether it's radiation, surgery or both, has for many years, decades, I'm sure, you know, been a potentially nightmare patient for urologists to care for in the reconstructive community. You know, these are men who have um, really significant problems either at the bladder neck or at the uh, vesico uh, urethral anastomosis. And um, it's a hard place to reach perineally and you risk uh, continence quite a lot when you go through a transficterate approach. So uh, some of the things that have, uh, that we've been doing more recently are these bladder neck repairs and that can be done with tissue interposition. So um, we're using buccal mucosa quite a lot there. Um, you know, the more traditional YV plasty, that is an area that's very nicely exposed robotically and particularly in patients where you would have already been considering uh, a um, dual approach to so an abdominal perineal approach. It's really nice to have that robot in the space, you know, and I think um, it's super applicable for lower urinary tract reconstruction in men. Um, and we've had some nice results uh, one of the groups out of New York has done a lot of those procedures with really encouraging results. What, um, what do you think the future holds for MIS and robotics and lower tract reconstruction? Is there, is there anything that you'd really like to kind of see, or is there something that is, um, just really, uh, going to really change uh, how we do things for really complex repairs, whether it be traumatic, post-operative, uh, congenital, et cetera. Yeah, you know, I think uh, as this technology continues to be integrated into our daily practice, as hopefully the cost continues to drop with market competition, uh, it's going to become more and more something that we we go to. Um, I think there'll be increasing use of the robot for intracorporeal bowel work. You know, as we do augments and and these stomas, I think it's a much uh, better morbidity with the robot. Uh, you know, we mentioned briefly doing uh, AUSs in women. I think that that's going to be very interesting. Um, you know, I think this will continue to evolve. We'll continue to see ways to approach things um, abdominally, well, minimally invasively from the abdomen for our lower pelvic issues. So, uh, you know, in the last five years, the innovation that we've seen for, um, you know, for genitourinary reconstruction with urethral pathology has been big. And I just, I think it's going to continue. You know, we've got a lot of really smart people in this field who are talented surgeons. So I'm excited to see what happens. Well, fantastic. Uh, Dr. DeLong, we really appreciate your expertise and your time. Um, on behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, the Endo and the Journal of Endourology, I would uh, like to thank you very much for your time. And uh, uh, we look forward to meeting you uh, in person. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.